we have arrived at the last chapter in the book of 1 John. Some of you are like, man, I didn't think we'd ever get here as slow as you're going. Um, but for me, it's like it's flown by. We have uh, reached the final chapter in our verse-by-verse study through this letter. And uh, we're not going to finish the book today, uh, but we are going to make our way through the first 12 verses. And as you know by now, if you've been with us uh, from the beginning of this series, you know that John is writing this letter to believers who they were troubled by false teachings that had invaded the church. Uh, they were hearing some different teachings about who Jesus is and what Jesus had done and you know, how they should live. And they were confused and they were starting to have doubts about their faith. They were unsure whether or not they were truly saved. And so John wrote this letter to address the false teachings, which he does throughout the letter. But more importantly, he wrote it to give these believers assurance. So he focuses on the things that will give them assurance. And when we began this series a few months ago, I told you that there are really three tests, three tests that John really focuses in on in this letter. Does anybody remember what they are? No? That's okay. I had to look it up too. No, I'm just kidding. It was right beliefs, right living, and right relationships. Right beliefs, right living, and right relationships. As we've made our way through this letter, we've seen John repeatedly returning to these three areas. And each time he takes them a little deeper and helps them to understand just a little better. He says that true Christians have right beliefs. They, they know who Jesus is. They know what Jesus has done. And they have put their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. True Christians have right beliefs. True Christians are also characterized by right living. Those who really are followers of Jesus will follow his commandments. They will obey him. Their lives are characterized as people who practice righteousness. And we've talked about the fact that doesn't mean they're perfect, right? But the trajectory of their lives is these are people who obey God and they practice righteousness. And then the third thing, true Christians have a right relationship with God and with each other. They abide in God, according to John, and God abides in them. And they love one another in the same way that Jesus loved them. And John has been cycling around all three of these back and forth. It's like, yeah, we already talked about this, John. But each time he takes them a little deeper. Right beliefs, right living, and right relationships. Three tests to know that we are truly saved. Well, this morning, as we start chapter five, in in the first five verses, John is going to bring all three of these together in in one paragraph. Uh, Just just five verses, John's going to hit on all three, right beliefs, right living, right relationships. And we're going to see how they're all intertwined. You don't have one without the other. They they come together as, as a package. And then in verses 6 through 12, hopefully we'll get through these, John is going to present a powerful, powerful testimony on why we should believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John's desire is that we would truly know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we might have eternal life through him. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. And uh, we're going to just work on the first 12 verses this morning. Verse 1, he says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. John reminds uh, the readers that true believers, those who are God's children, are those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. They have right beliefs. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. But let's talk about this for just a second. What does John mean by believing that Jesus is the Christ? Does it mean I just have to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ? Is it just a bunch of facts, like a checklist that we have to run through that says, I believe this, 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 and this. I believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I believe that Jesus was the son of Mary and Joseph. I believe that Jesus lived a perfect life. I believe that he died on a cross and that he rose from the grave, and I believe it. Is it just a mental checklist? Like we have to mentally give assent to these facts? Or is it something more? What is the biblical view of belief? Because everything that I just said, you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's what you need to believe, right? And that is true. But the Bible says that even the demons believe all of that, right? In James chapter 2, verse 19, the Bible tells us that even the demons believe in God. They know who God is. They knew who Jesus was. When Jesus was walking the earth, they're like, don't destroy us, right? They know who Jesus is. So simply just having a mental assent can't be what's required for salvation. What does it mean to truly believe? Well, I've heard it put like this. If you were to come to the edge of a cliff, let's say you were to come to the edge of a cliff and below you've got some raging water, right? And you could get to the other side of the cliff if you were to walk across a bridge that's been built there, you know? You might, you might in your mind believe that that bridge is capable of holding your weight. That bridge could hold me if I walked across it. You might believe that, that, that other people have made it successfully across the bridge. Maybe you've actually seen people put their faith in that bridge and walk across it. But that type of belief doesn't get you to the other side, does it? Just believing that it's able to, just believing that it has, doesn't get you to the other side. Your belief has to be put into action in order to get to the other side, right? At some point, your belief has to go from here to here to here, right? You're going to have to step out and step onto that bridge if you're going to get to the other side. You're going to have to put, really, the full weight of your body on that bridge to carry you across, right? Trusting that it is able to. That's biblical belief. Biblical belief is not only knowing that Jesus is able to carry us safely into eternal life and to give us eternal life. Biblical belief is actually putting your eternal destiny on the line and stepping out and trusting Jesus to carry you through. Biblical belief is more than just intellectual assent to a bunch of facts. To believe in Jesus is to put your trust in him, knowing that he paid the price for your sins, knowing that without him, there is no hope whatsoever for you to make that transition and to be restored back into a right relationship with God. It's impossible, but it's totally possible through Jesus, right? 
But notice what John says in verse one. He says, everyone who believes like that, present tense, present tense. It's not everybody who has believed. It's everybody who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. John says that our present and our continuing belief in Jesus is evidence that we have been born of God. That should give you assurance. Like, not just that I believed at one point, but the fact that I continue to believe that Jesus is my Savior, that Jesus is my hope. When you believe that, that gives you assurance that you have been born again. You don't point back to something you believed at one point as assurance that you were saved. You point to what exists right now in your heart. Amen? Right beliefs matter. True Christians have right beliefs. And John says that our belief in Jesus gives, is an evidence that we are God's children. And he says that this not only impacts our relationship with God, but it also impacts our relationship with one another. Look at what he says in the second half of verse one. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. Now we talked about this in, in depth last week, so I don't need to, to dive too deep into this. But true Christians not only love God, they also love God's children. In chapter 4, verse 21, the, the verse that immediately preceded this one, John said, in this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love for God and love for God's children, they go together. True Christians not only have right beliefs, but they have a right relationship with God and they have a right relationship with one another. So how do we know if we love God's children? How do we know? Well, we kind of covered that in, in the previous section, right? Some of the evidences that we love God's children. But I love what John does here. This is different. He's gonna, he's gonna change things just a little bit. He's gonna twist things. He's gonna flip them around. In verse two, he says this. By this, we know that we love the children of God. Ready for it? When we love God and obey his commandments. I love the way that John flips this around because we've seen over and over as we've been making our way through this book that, that John has made it clear that our love for one another is evidence that we know and love God. Now he says that, that our love for God and our obedience to him is evidence that we love one another. John says that when we love God and we obey his commandments, we're gonna know that we love one another. Because you can't love God and keep his commandments and not love one another. I mean, think about it for a second. If I love God, then, then, then I'm going to demonstrate that love by obeying his commands. It's just like if, I, if my kids say they love me and I ask them to do something, they're like, I don't think so, Dad. I'm like, you sure you love me? You know? And, and if I'm walking in obedience to God following his commands, how am I going to treat other believers? I mean, if I follow God's commands on how to treat other believers, what is that going to look like? The New Testament contains dozens, dozens and dozens of commands on how we are to relate with one another. 
Um, actually, I meant to print this out for you this morning, but I, I will after the service. If anybody's interested, I'll print out a copy for you. There's, there's 59 one another's written in the New Testament. And uh, if you want to stick around afterwards, I'd be happy to provide you uh, with that list. But um, let me just go ahead and just run through a few of the ones that are highlighted in, in the scriptures. God commands us, with regards to one another, to carry each other's burdens. He says to forgive each other, to encourage each other, to live in harmony with one another, to honor one another above yourselves, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, to build each other up, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. He says to pray for each other, to offer hospitality to one another, to be at peace with each other. And just in case, just in case throughout this whole series, you have totally missed it. (laughs) And when you see the list, when I give it to you, you'll see the last six, the last six one another's in the scripture are all written by John in 1 John and 2 John. And here's, here's what they are. Love one another, 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 love one another. And that's not the only love one another's. You can go back and read his gospel and there's a lot more there too. We are supposed to love one another. And if we love God and we obey his commands, what's it going to look like in how we relate to each other? I mean, just think about the list that I just read to you, and that's just a few of them, right? True Christians not only have right beliefs and right relationships, true Christians walk in obedience to God's commands, and their lives are characterized by right living. Do you see how all these go together? Do you see it? Right beliefs, right living, and right relationships. These are the characteristics of a true follower of Jesus Christ. Well, in verse three, John continues and says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John says that obedience to God is the demonstration of our love for him. You know, Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 14. uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It just doesn't make sense. If you say you love God or you say you love Jesus and you ignore what he teaches, Jesus says, you don't really love me. You don't really love me. Our love for God is demonstrated by our obedience to his commandments. And John says that his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. It's, it's almost as if, it's almost as if when I, when I read that line, it's, you know, his commandments are not burdensome. In my mind, I heard John in his mind saying, I know what they're going to say. I know what they're going to say. Oh, it's just too hard to follow God's commandments, right? There's so many rules, right? It's such a burden, right? What did Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, sometimes I think that for people who are professing Christians, who who are feeling like they're carrying a heavy yoke to follow Christ, maybe you're not carrying his yoke. 
you know? Maybe you've bought the yoke of the Pharisees. Maybe you've bought the yoke of legalism. Jesus' yoke is easy. It's light. He really boiled it down to two commandments, didn't he? Love God and love others. This is not a heavy yoke. Jesus says, come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what's a burdensome yoke to carry? How about carrying the weight of sin? Jesus invites you to come and follow him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. There is freedom. There is freedom in following God's commands. We sang about it this morning in, in, in many of those songs. The Bible says that when we follow God's spirit, the fruit, the, the result of following God, the natural result of following God's spirit is, ready, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't know about you, but that does not sound like a heavy burden, does it? That sounds awesome, doesn't it? Wouldn't you like that to describe your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. True freedom, true love, true joy, true peace are found in following Jesus. That's the natural byproduct of a life lived following Jesus. But people, what are they going to say? Maybe you've said it. Man, the Bible is just a bunch of rules, right? Have you ever heard that? Oh, the Bible is just a bunch of rules. Don't do this and don't do that. It is such a burden, so heavy. It's going to take away all the fun in my life if I follow God. but I find that most people who say that have never taken a closer look at the things that the Bible says don't do. What does it say not to do? Here's a list. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Those are all in the Ten Commandments, right? What a killjoy. You know? I can't lie, covet, steal, murder, and commit adultery? Wow! God takes away all the fun. How about don't overdrink and become drunk? Don't overeat and be a glutton. Don't be lazy. These are some of the other commands, the don'ts in Scripture. And you've heard this before, and I, I think it was James McDonald who first said it, but when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. I mean, think about it for a second. Where do all of those things that I just read lead you? Where do lying, coveting, stealing, adultery, and murder lead you? Where does laziness and gluttony lead you? Where does drunkenness and, and drug addiction lead you? Where does it lead you? Broken dreams, broken relationships, broken marriages, broken families. Sin leads you into bondage, right? Sin enslaves us. But brothers and sisters, we were not meant to live as slaves to sin. We were meant to be set free as slaves to righteousness. God's commandments are not burdensome. They are freeing. 
you follow God's commands and you get the fruit of the Spirit being lived out in your life. But even though we know this, right? Even though we know this, there, that there's freedom in obeying God's commands, there is still a temptation to follow the ways of the world. Even though we've been set free, even though we have overcome, we still need to continue to overcome the temptation and the draw of sin, which is why John says in verses four through five, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Three times, three times in these two verses, John talks about overcoming the world, which as we've talked about earlier in this, in this series is the world system, worldliness, the, the world system which stands opposed to God. How do we overcome worldliness and the desires of the flesh? Well, John tells us in these verses, right? This is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith, right? Our faith. Our faith in Jesus, the Son of God, has given us victory. Brothers and sisters, by faith in Jesus Christ, we have already overcome the world. We've been set free. Again, read, read Romans chapter six. Paul talks about it at length. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we not only have overcome the world, but we will continue to overcome the pull of the world towards sin. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that we have overcome, and it's by faith in Jesus Christ that we will continue to overcome. Amen? And so in these first five verses, John has, has brought all three of these tests, which lead to our assurance, he's brought them together, right beliefs, right living, right relationships. True Christians are those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. They love God, they love one another, and their lives are characterized by obedience to him. Now in verses six through 12, John is, is going to focus in on who Jesus is, who he is. Let's look at verses six through eight. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, if you, you know, read that, and your reaction is to like scratch your head and say, huh? What, what is he talking about? What's the, the, the blood, the water, the spirit? What in the world is this? You just need to know this. That's where you and biblical interpreters for the last several centuries have a lot in common. All right? This is a perplexing passage of, of scripture. It's difficult to interpret. And there have been many different explanations given for what John means here by the water and the blood. People are pretty confident when he talks about the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. But when he talks about the blood and the water, there's less agreement. And while most of the, I say most because there's always some wacky ideas, right? While most of the different opinions about what John means by the blood and the water, most of them have their merits. You, you'd read that and you say, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good idea. 
for the sake of time and because I don't want to put you to sleep, I actually started to really get into this. And I asked my wife, I said, hey, Jen, what do you think? I'm explaining this. What do you think? She said, oh, man, you lost me. Like that, uh, you're losing me. So I actually pulled it all out. But hey, if you're, a, you're kind of a Bible geek and you want to you wanna talk about this with me, I would love to talk with you about more of these these ideas and why I land on the one that I'm going to present today. I think the position that I'm going to present is the one that is, um, first of all, it is the most widely held view, but also it is the one that I believe is the most consistent with the context of this letter. And context is king, right? We got to stay true to the context of, of, of this letter. But the first thing that I want you to see is the way that John just sort of uses the phrase, the water and the blood. He just drops it without a whole lot of explanation, right? He just says it. He assumes that the original audience knows exactly what he is talking about. I was thinking about it. It would be kind of like this. If I were to uh, come up to one of you and I was to say this, shoulder to shoulder is beautiful. Shoulder to shoulder is beautiful. Now, because you're part of the Fayette Baptist Church family, and you heard the announcement this morning, maybe you're visiting with us, but you heard the announcement earlier, because you're familiar with shoulder to shoulder, you would say, yeah, I know exactly what Chris is talking about, right? You know exactly what I mean by shoulder to shoulder. I don't have to explain it. And when I say it's beautiful, you know exactly what I mean by being beautiful. But think about this. Next month, uh, my buddy Nathaniel and and I are... um, we're going to Israel uh, for two weeks. By the way, if you didn't know that, you now know that. Um, and I'm not flexing on you or anything, but um, I am totally feeling pretty blessed. I, I've always wanted to go to Israel, and next week I'm going to be going for two weeks uh, to tour and see the, see the land where Jesus walked and lived. Looking forward to that. But let's just say that Nathaniel and I are sitting in the airport Uh, on the day we depart. We're at JFK and we're waiting for our flight and I just get the urge to walk up to some total stranger and I walk up to them and I say, shoulder to shoulder is beautiful. Can you imagine what they would be thinking? I mean, at best, at best they would be confused and they would like shrink away. At worst, they would yell, security, right? There's a weirdo over here who's talking about being shoulder to shoulder with me and that being a beautiful thing. Like, I don't know who this weirdo is, but he needs to get, get away from me, right? It, it makes no sense in the context. They have nothing to, to, to attach it to, right? But for you, it's like, yeah, shoulder to shoulder is beautiful. Well, I think the same thing is going on in this passage. When John talks about the water and the blood, the original audience are like, oh yeah, the water and the blood. We've heard this teaching before right? Either John himself had taught about the water and the blood, or maybe the false teachers were using this phrase to describe something about Jesus. And so for them, it's no big deal. And John has no need to explain it any further. He just says, yeah, the water and the blood testify that Jesus is the son of God. He just drops it. So John says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. You see, whatever the blood and the water mean, we know that they point to Jesus being the Messiah, that he is the son of God. 
This whole section from verses 6 through 12 is all about Jesus. John wants to make a case here that Jesus is the Son of God. He wants the reader to know who Jesus really is. And he says the blood, the water, and the Spirit, they all testify that Jesus is the Son of God. And so in verses 7 through 8, John says that there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And at the end of verse 8, he says, and these three agree. They all agree. And this is an important detail because in ancient times, testimony had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 19. So John says, look, we've got three witnesses who all agree. They all testify that Jesus is the Son of God. We have more than enough evidence is what he's saying here. So let's talk about the three witnesses, all right? The first witness is the water, which most biblical interpreters believe is a reference to Jesus' baptism. This event marked the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It's recorded in all four Gospels. And the scriptures tell us that when Jesus came up out of the water, right, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying what? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God the Father declared Jesus to be his son at the baptism. And in John's gospel, we're told that, that John the Baptist had received a word from God saying this in John 1, and 34. He on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The water, which symbolizes Jesus' baptism, clearly testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. The second witness is the blood. And I believe that the blood symbolizes the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Again, this is an event that is recorded in all four Gospels. And we're told in the Gospel accounts that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, as Jesus was hanging there, paying the price for our sins, it says that darkness covered the land for three hours. It was an unnatural darkness that covered the land, right? Otherwise, why would you write about it? No, something was happening as Jesus hung from the sixth to the ninth hour. Darkness covered the land. And we're told that when Jesus breathed his last breath, we're told that there was an earthquake and the veil of the temple, which stood between the people and God, right, from going to God, that veil was torn from top to bottom when Jesus breathed his last breath. God himself was testifying that Jesus is his son. That's exactly what people who were present thought, right? In Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, we're told that when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, what? Truly, this was the Son of God. The blood, which symbolizes Jesus' death, clearly testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. It also clearly testifies to the humanity of Jesus, right? 
If he was just spirit, he wouldn't have shed blood, right? If he was just a spirit. And that is something that the Gnostic teachers, as we've talked about, the false teachers at that time denied. They completely denied the humanity of Jesus. Look at what John says in verse six. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now watch what he says here. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. This is a huge uh, clue to the context that John is addressing here. John is emphasizing that Jesus came by blood in addition to the water. It seems that there must have been some sort of general agreement that Jesus came by water. That maybe even the false teachers had no problem agreeing to the fact that Jesus came by water because they would have been focused on the spirit descending and the idea that Jesus would now baptize in the spirit. And, and for the Gnostic, for the, for the false teachers of the day, they were all about the spirit and nothing about the flesh. So he said, John says, no, no, Jesus didn't just come by the spirit. He also came by the blood. It's both. Both the water and the blood testify that Jesus is the Son of God. At both his baptism and his crucifixion, Jesus was testified to be the Son of God. And, and the third witness, the third witness here, John says, is the Spirit. At the end of verse 6, he says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Now, I want you to notice that the water and the blood are said to have already come. He came by water. He came by blood. Past tense. These have already testified that Jesus is the Son of God. But the Spirit, John says, testifies. You see that? It's present tense. That Jesus is the Son of God. Because the Spirit is the truth. The Holy Spirit continues to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus said uh, about the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And it's a continual action. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He confirms that we believe in our hearts, doesn't he? John says that there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. But as I said before, there are other ideas uh, about what John may have meant by the water and the blood. Personally, I think that his baptism and his crucifixion make the most sense, and they're the most consistent with the context of this letter. Uh, just, just I'll throw it out there so you can look into it yourself. So uh, some people think that the water is a reference to Jesus' birth. Some, it's something to do with the, his natural birth. But again, that would emphasize what? His humanity. Well, we've already got his humanity emphasized in his death. So clearly it's something else is testifying to the fact that he is the son of God. Other people believe it's uh, the sacraments, maybe because we set the sacraments of the church being baptism and communion. And these testify that, that he is the son of God. But again, he came by the water. He came by the blood, right? The sacraments were something that were being instituted, right? They were future. So there's that. And then other people believe that maybe it's, it's 
you know, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the, the centurion stuck a spear in his side, and you're told that the blood and water came forth. But that's now combining the two together, and John is very clearly saying it's not just the water, it's the water and the blood. Make sense? All right. So you agree with me. Am I right? Okay. So, see, Jen, I could tell him. I told him all about it. So, in not as much detail, of course, is what I tried to share with her. <laughs> so, um, I, I think that this is the best explanation. But here's the deal. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter. I could be completely wrong. The point of the message is that there are three things that testify that he is the Son of God. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. And even if we don't know what those exactly were that John had in mind, we know that this is the Word of God, and we know that there are these three things that testify that Jesus is the Son of God, and that's the point. And as we're going to see in the next few verses, that this testimony, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, are actually the testimony of God the Father concerning his Son. And so when John continues in verse 9, he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. John says that, hey, if you're going to believe the testimony of two or three fallen human beings who can barely be trusted, right? Because they like to lie, right? And steal and covet and commit adultery and murder. John says, if we're going to believe the testimony of two or three human witnesses, how much more should we believe the testimony that God has borne concerning his son? John says that the spirit, the water, and the blood are the testimony of God the Father that Jesus is his son. And the whole purpose, the whole purpose of God's testimony about his son is so that we might believe. That's the whole point. God sent his son to reconcile us back into a right relationship with him. John says in verses, uh, verse 10, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. When we believe God's testimony concerning his son, we receive his spirit who bears witness to us, to our spirit that we have believed correctly. As John Stott puts it, the testimony is both the cause and the consequence of belief. But to those who do not believe God's testimony, John says they are basically calling God a liar. That's pretty serious. God has testified that Jesus is his son, and they're saying, no, he's not. No, he's not. In verses 11 and 12, John summarizes the reward for those who accept Jesus, those who accept God's testimony and believe in his son. He says this, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And as I've mentioned a, a couple of times in this series, John not only wrote this letter, right? He also wrote the Gospel of John, which in his own words was a testimony to all that he had seen and heard with regards to Jesus. The Gospel of John is John's testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. And in chapter 20, verse 31, John says that he wrote his gospel. His testimony was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And now here in these final verses, John says, and that's exactly why God has given testimony about his son as well, that you might believe and have life in his name. Eternal life, listen, eternal life is only available through the son of God, period. Jesus said in John 14, verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I have no idea, you know, whether you have ever put your faith in Jesus. But I'm telling you that that is why God sent his son. He sent his son to die in your place so that you might have eternal life. And so today, if you're here and you have never, ever put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God is inviting you. God the Father has testified through the Spirit, the water, and the blood that this is his Son sent to die in your place, and he's inviting you to put your faith and trust in him, to step out onto the bridge, which is Jesus Christ, who is able to carry you safely into eternal life with God. And by the way, sometimes I think when we talk about this, we talk about the idea that, so when I die, I get to go to heaven. And I just want to emphasize that, that Jesus Christ came to set you free, not only so that you'll spend eternity with him, so that you can start spending a life of freedom with him right now. He came to set you free. You don't have to live a life of bondage anymore. Whatever, whatever it is that's holding you shackled, you can be set free by calling out to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pray here in a moment and I'm, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. If this is something that you wanna do, you wanna put your faith in Jesus Christ today. There's no magic words, like I gotta say the exact right thing, but I'm just gonna lead you in a prayer. You pray this in your heart and the Bible says that you'll be saved, okay? And then if you pray that prayer, I'm gonna ask you that when the service is over, would you just come and talk with me? I want to give you uh, a Bible if you need a Bible. Uh, I want to give you any resources you need. And, and I want to be able to walk with you in your new journey with Christ, okay? So let me just lead you in a prayer. And then let's have the worship team come up right now as I'm praying and we'll close our time together in song. Amen? Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for this time in your word. I want to thank you that you have... That you have uh, you have come to this world, you lived a perfect life and you died in our place. And your father, your father says that your, your blood and, and, and the water, the baptism and, and, the, and the crucifixion testify that you are his son. Your father says that, that his spirit that he sends to dwell within the lives of his children testifies that you are his son. And so Jesus right now, there may be some people here who don't know you personally. They don't know you. They've never, they've never given their lives to you. God, I pray if right now, if, you're, if your spirit is, is pressing it on their hearts, that they would have the boldness to take the step of faith right now and to pray the words that I'm about to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for coming to this world and living a perfect life. Thank you for paying the price that I could not pay by dying on the cross for my sins. 
I believe that you are the son of God. And I believe you when you say that there's no other way to eternal life but through you. And I want to follow you. I want to know you. I want you to save me. I want you to be my savior, but I want you to be my Lord. I want to live my life for you. I, 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 I want to have a life that's characterized by righteousness. I want the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace. All of those things, God. We, I, I need those in my life. And so, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you give me new life, eternal life, that begins now? Be my Savior, be my Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.